Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. We are a Southern Baptist church dedicated to seeking the glory of God by proclaiming the gospel in all that we do. If you would like more information, please visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. this passage. Romans 9 here in just a bit. I'm going to read 14 through 23. I've looked forward to to this message in particular um, because this message in particular is uh, showing and defending the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God in his work of of divine election, which is one of the biggest questions uh, that often comes to our hearts when we learn this truth for the first time. And this passage is dealing with showing this is how God is righteous. This is how it works. So Romans 9, we're going to begin reading in verse 14. I'll just remind you that where where we just left in the passage before was uh, uh, explaining this this, uh, doctrine of divine election. Before the world was even made, God chose those who would be saved. We start in verse 14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, we come and I ask, O Lord, that you will glorify your name. So we see that in this passage, there are ways you demonstrate your power, your absolute rule and sovereignty and freedom to do whatever you want. We see your righteousness demonstrated, explained and defended. And so, Lord, I want to ask that specifically we will come to see this truth. I pray that you will feed us from your word. Give us the ability to intellectually understand. And then, Lord, I, I pray that our hearts will rejoice as we regard you as righteous, that we see your righteousness. And Lord, that this worship arises from within us as we recognize you as the Holy One the one worthy of all worship. So please help. Please send your spirit. Please enable me, my my heart, my mind, my mouth, everything that, that I need to preach and be useful here. Please bless us to worship as we see your truths and then respond rightly. Respond in faith, oh God. So please, we pray, hallow your name. Cause us to revere you as holy. And Lord, then that this brings great transformation. Any in the room that is not yet born again, we ask, oh God, that you would awaken faith. We pray that you will call them to yourself. Bless our little ones. Bless this time. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One day when I was teaching a group of middle schoolers in our uh, good news ministry we have in the schools there, I just kind of in passing mentioned something about marriage. 
And one of the students raised their hand and said, uh, Pastor Josh, as a Christian, do you have to get married in order to obey God? And I said, well, well, funny you ask that. Uh, the Corinthians ask that exact question to Paul in a letter that they wrote, and he answers that question over in 1 Corinthians 7. So I spent just a little bit of time explaining Paul's answer there. And before I was done, another kid raised their hand and asked, and so I called on a Pastor Josh, and then that child asked, essentially what is the very next question that is asked there in 1 Corinthians 7? And this kind of continued through most of the class period. By the time we were done, they had asked, you know, more than half of those questions that the Corinthians had asked Paul and he addresses there. And that's the first time I think it dawned on me that there are places in the Bible, quite a few places where what's happening is the Holy Spirit anticipates the kinds of questions that humans will ask when they learn a particular truth. And that's exactly what is happening here in Romans 9. When we learn the, the truth that we have, we have just seen, where we, where we left off last week, showing this, this, uh, this uh, truth from the Bible, that God has a sovereignly predestined souls for salvation before the world was made, the Holy Spirit knowing our hearts, uh, knowing our pride, our ego, our depravity knows the kinds of questions that will come up and that will be asked. And so what is asked there in verse 14 is the most natural question that comes out. If you've ever had conversations with somebody on this doctrine, you know, you've probably heard this kind of thing. Your heart has probably wrestled with the exact same question. Whenever you learn this for the first time, it could be worded in a lot of different ways of it. Wait, is this fair or how is this righteous or, you know, there's no injustice with God. And so what he asked there in verse 14 is, is all of those kinds of questions. How is this right? And what happens then in the rest of the passage, 14 to 23 is this a third point in the outline and it's teaching this doctrine further. So there are going to be a lot more truths about election that we learn as we walk through the passage, but really all of them are, um, they're arranged in such a way that they're answering the question of verse 14. They're, they're, they're taught in a way that is addressing this question is this righteous? And so what we're going to do in this message is essentially just spend time interacting with the question. The question, is divine election just? Is it righteous? And what we're going to see, there's more to the outline that I'll show you. So this is point number three. God's sovereignty and choosing to save the children of promise. This is the first subpoint, letter A, which is just asking, is predestination just? I'm, I'm going to give you some more to that outline. I'm going to give you five answers um, here in just a little bit. But, but first, before we go any further, let's just interact a little bit with the passage by way of some more introduction here. First of all, let me point out, if it's not already obvious to you, the fact that the question is being asked is clearly showing we are dealing with the issue of election here. Now, the reason why I bring that up is if you spend enough time talking with people, okay, people who profess faith in Christ, you're going to talk with some people who deny the doctrine of election. Now, one of the things you need to remind them of is, um, the Bible says God does it. He predestines. So you may not believe the same thing I do about it, but you have to believe in predestination or you're ripping pages out of the Bible. But you will encounter some folks who say, okay, okay yeah, whatever. I don't believe God does it like that. And whenever you have that conversation, one of the things you might ask is, well, then what do you do with Romans 9? And one of, the, one of the ways you'll hear people respond to that is, is they'll say something like, oh, you, know, you silly child, it's a common misunderstanding because what Romans 9 is really saying is, and then for the next 30 minutes, <laughs> you hear this convoluted rambling around. I've heard things like, well, really what it's talking about is nations, not individuals, all this kind of stuff. And by the time they're done, it, it, you know, God's sovereignty is all removed and it's only about man's decision. Listen. 
If that's what's happening, then verse 14 makes no sense in the passage. It's already been made clear. If we're being honest about the passage, divine election, unconditional election is being taught. And verse 14 is addressing the question that comes from our heart of, well, then how does it work? How is it righteous? How is it fair? The question is asked, and then notice that the answer that the text provides. So here, here's how the text goes. It goes like this. Is it unrighteous? Then in verse 14, the quick answer obviously is given. May it never be. We've mentioned that's been used numerous times in the book of Romans. That In the Greek language, this is one of the strongest ways to, to say, absolutely not. Okay. May it never be. But then verses 15 through 18 are showing why. So is it unrighteous? No. Explanation, proof, and the why, 15 through 18. But when you look at 15 through 18, just, just kind of glance at it again, if you will. 15 through 18, if you were going to summarize the explanation of how God is righteous, what would you say? What would you jot down? And the reason why I bring that up is when you just spend just a few minutes looking at the text, I don't think it's immediately obvious how verses 15 to 18 answer the question. Now, I believe they do. And that's what we're going to spend time on today. But when you first read it, you're just kind of like, well, I, I don't really see how he's answering the question. Because, because notice the flow of the text. He asked the question, is it righteous? No. Here's the explanation. Look at verse 15. It sounds like he's essentially just restating the truth. God chooses who he wants. Okay, but how does that answer the question, is it righteous? And then you notice verse 16 is, uh, verse 16 is explaining verse 15. I, I love it when the Bible does that, okay? And then verse 17 quotes another passage from the Old Testament. And then verse 18 is explaining verse 17. And when you read all of that, it kind of just sounds like, well, we, I mean, look at verse 17. He goes somewhere even harder. God hardens whom he desires. How does that answer the question, is it righteous? Because it kind of just sounds like he's restating it. Well, I believe it does answer the question there. I think in verses 15 to 18, there are three answers. Three answers to the question that show how God is righteous. And then you notice verse 19. Verse 19, ask another question, this time going even deeper because the issue of God's absolute sovereignty is addressed in verse 18. And, and then verse 19, it's asked more specifically about human accountability. And so we're, we're going to get there, not today, but in weeks to come, we're going to look at some of those things. So, so how does that work? And then in 20 and 21, he gives two more answers to the question of, is it righteous? And then 22, 23, and really the rest of the passage is all ex further explaining what is being shown there in those things. So in all, I see five answers. So what I'm going to do in this message is I'm going to tell you the five answers and I'm going to spend time, significant time, with the first two of them. The reason why is in weeks to come, we're, we're going to keep working through the passage verse by verse. But I always kind of like to show how the whole passage fits together, what the flow of thought there is. And so mostly, I'm going to show you the five answers. Three of them, I'm just going to say briefly at the end. But the first two, I'm going to spend some more time with to show you how it works. So, is it unrighteous? No. Answer number one. So here's answer number one, if you're keeping track or taking notes. Answer number one is, the Bible says so. The Bible says so. And I do believe that, that I'm not trying to be facetious. I do believe that is an answer given in the text. So if you notice what happens in verses 15 to 18, is the Holy Spirit leads Paul to quote Old Testament scripture in support for this doctrine. Now for these you know, new early church Christians, they didn't call it the Old Testament. It was just the Bible. Okay. It was just the scripture. The New Testament was not yet completed at this time. And so he's just quoting scripture, quoting the Bible. And one of the points that's being made there is, look guys, God's been saying all along 
that it works like this. In verse 15, he quotes Exodus 33, 19. And then in verse 17, he quotes Exodus 9, 16. Two places that just very clearly show, guys, all the way back in the opening parts of the Bible, it's been shown that this is how God works. Now, remember, we looked at some passages from Genesis. I think you can see numerous places in the book of Genesis where this is shown. Jacob and Esau was one of them that was pointed out. And then now he quotes a couple places from Exodus. And so part of the point here is God has shown that this is how it works. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time with this argument because understanding how the Bible makes arguments is part of how you study the Bible. It's how we understand the way that these things work. And so it is possible that for the next little bit, some of the things I'm going to do, somebody might think this is a waste of time. I assure you it is not. God created a world where logic works. God cre the, the reason why logic works is because God is a God of order and created a universe where this works. And don't ever fall for the lie the commonly believed lie that the world uses logic, but we Christians, we have to throw logic out and we hold to faith and faith is blindly walking in the dark. That is absolutely not the case. There's a reason why in church history, the greatest apologists over and over again have appealed to logic in order to convince skeptics. The Bible uses logical arguments a lot. We've, we've pointed it out numerous times in the book of Romans. And even here in this passage here, there is, I mean, like the simplest form of a logical argument that takes place here. And so it is important that we understand how these things work. And just one more kind of parenthetical thing I'll say is this. The more that I engage with logic, the more familiar that you get with logical fallacies and how a, a right logical argument is, is ordered, the more whenever you're listening to the news and listening to politicians speak, okay, you see them using logical fallacies and faulty assumptions just all the time, all the time. And a lot of times when the world is making a, a, a quote scientific argument, they're actually not doing good science. They're, they're using logical uh, fallacies and faulty assumptions. Just because somebody uses the word science in a sentence doesn't mean that they're actually doing science, okay? And, and if you learn this and engage with this, I do believe God wants us to learn how to do this because he shows us in the Bible. I believe Jesus used some logical arguments like over in John 10. You can see that sometime whenever he talks about the word of God cannot be broken and such. But let me, keep, let me, let me, let me come back to the text here. If you're not sure that you believe the Bible, if you're trying to weigh out what you think of the Bible and you're going to judge whether or not you hold to the Bible based on if you like what it says, then you don't like this first argument. That we're shown God is righteous because the Bible says so. Now for us who accept the scriptures as true because they are spoken from the lips of God, this is enough for us. It is enough for us for the Bible to say God is righteous and God predestines. Now, one of the things that I want to tell you is the text is going to go further in this and we're going to be shown how he is righteous so that we see it so that our hearts regard him as righteous and so that we're able to make sense of it. But we do got to know that a lot of times where we begin is the Bible says so. We trust God and God says it is this way. Oftentimes, this is where belief begins, and it's later that we come to see the goodness and the clarity and the righteousness of some truth. But Christian, if you spend enough time uh, interacting with skeptics, you're eventually going to encounter a, a pattern, and you'll find that a lot of people would be willing to believe the Bible if the Bible agreed with me. Like, I'd be willing to believe the Bible if the Bible told me that I'm good, I'm wonderful, that all the sins that I like are actually okay, all my sexual preferences, they're all legitimate. If the Bible would agree with me and all my political points, then I would believe in God. Now, that's not only unrighteous, that's illogical, okay? That's like saying I would believe in math if math would do what I wanted it to do. If it showed that I had a million dollars in the bank, then I would hold to math, okay? That's unreasonable. We Christians... 
we recognize that the Bible is the word of God and we receive it as truth. Now those words recognize and receive are incredibly important. So if somebody asks you, why do you believe the Bible? You know, what, what would you say? It's kind of hard to think of an answer on the spot sometimes, but we, we do not weigh the Bible to say, does it teach what I want it to teach? And if it holds what I want, therefore I will believe it. No, we recognize the scripture as the word of God. And it contains a lot of things that my flesh would have said another way, but we recognize it as the word of God. And therefore we submit to it by receiving it as truth. The internal witness of our conscience, which is what Romans one talks about, internal witness, the internal witness of the Holy Spirit, in addition to that, the external evidence, which Romans one points that out as well. So I just mentioned three things, internal witness of, of being made in the image of God, the Holy Spirit's internal witness, and then external evidence of things we could point to like fulfilled prophecy and whatnot. All of these things are crying out, this is true and you know it's true. The Holy Spirit within us is giving witness, this is true and you know it is, so don't deny it. And so faith is to receive it as truth. Because one of the things that Romans 1 talked about is that those who refuse to believe, what is happening there is deep, deep down, the evidence is there. The witness is crying out, this is true and you know it's true, but they don't like it. So they refuse to receive the truth as true and they decide to believe other things. So we who believe scripture, we receive it as true. You don't, but if you don't believe the Bible, you don't like this first argument, but I am telling you it's a righteous argument. For you who receive the Bible is true. The first argument goes like this. Predestination is not unrighteous. Answer, why? Because the Bible says that God who is righteous does this, therefore predestination is not righteous. It's just kind of like the simplest form of, of, of a logical argument. There's a, st a statement with some evidence and then there is a conclusion in this quote that is there. Now some might say, Okay, this, this, is, this is where I'm telling you, okay? Don't let your eyes glaze over because we're talking about abstract things. Abstract thinking is hard, okay? Lean in, stay with me for just like four more minutes, okay? Some would say that's a circular argument, but it's not. It's not a circular argument. A circular argument is something like, let me give you an example. The Bible is true, therefore you shouldn't doubt it. That's a circular argument. Now it's a true statement, but a logical argument is when you're trying to conclude truth for your own heart. And by the way, that is important. How do I conclude truth? Okay. You need to use logical processes, not just listen to politicians who ramble on and use circular arguments all the time. Okay. We got to recognize this. How do you conclude truth for yourself? Logical argument. And then a logical argument is for when you're trying to convince someone else of truth as well. Circular arguments are not useful in that. So, you know, the Bible is true. Therefore, you shouldn't doubt it. You, you can just reverse those phrases. You shouldn't doubt the Bible because the Bible's true. It's, it's just, it just goes in a circle. But if I said the Bible is true because it is spoken from the lips of the God who cannot lie, now we have a reasonable statement. Now you have 2 Timothy 3.16, okay? See how the Bible does this, okay? It is God-breathed. And so what Paul is using here is not a circular argument, okay? So a basic logical argument goes something like, and there are, there are all kinds of variations, and this is one of the simplest ones, if this and then this, therefore this, okay? Women have XX chromosomes. Tara is a woman. Therefore, Tara has XX chromosomes. You see that? Okay, so that's a reasonable argument that is there. And we have something similar that's happening right here. Paul is appealing to us to say, you accept the scriptures as true. And the scriptures say that God who is righteous predestines. Therefore, predestination is righteous. I believe that's the argument that's being made here. 
I maybe made it a little bit more complicated than just saying the Bible says so, but I want you to follow kind of what he's doing here and how this is being stated. The first answer to the question, is this unrighteous? It is answered by saying, no, no, guys, think back to the Old Testament. Over and over again, the God who is righteous, the God you have always held to be righteous, we're told he does this. Therefore, it is not unrighteous. Now, we're going to see more that's going to help our hearts to come to have peace about this, to see the righteousness. But many, many times we start with, before you see it, you have to trust God. In fact, I believe that's the point behind why in the Garden of Eden, God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why did God put it there? Mankind needs some commandment that he can't immediately see why it is, but he is told, trust God. And we have to begin with that statement, trust God. And so we begin with this, the Bible says so. Now here's the second answer from the text. Look at verse 15, read it with me again. For, so you know, the, the language there is showing, here's the first way the explanation of how he is righteous begins to come. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Paul quotes a verse from the Old Testament where God reveals that the only way anyone is saved is by God's mercy. And it is the introduction of mercy and us beginning to understand justice and mercy and the difference between them. The difference between justice and mercy, righteousness and, and grace and compassion, that light bulbs start to come on. Light bulbs start to come on of, oh, that is how it works. That is how it is righteous. So predestination is righteous because it is God's mercy at work. And it is God's prerogative who he shows mercy to. So that's how I'd summarize the second answer. See, if you believe that God choosing individuals to be saved is unrighteous, um, the way you might think of it is, so here's a plant that is growing. Here's a belief, okay? God is unrighteous to predestine. There are some beliefs below the surface that are fueling that. This belief is coming out of some things you hold before that. You remember last week we talked a bit about faulty presuppositions, assumptions that are not true. If you believe that it is unrighteous for God to predestine, there are some assumptions that you hold and we're submitting to you, they are erroneous. They're faulty assumptions. You may assume that people are good and therefore God should be giving everybody eternal life. Or maybe you are assuming that God owes everyone certain things. And one of the most common is the, is the assumption that God owes everyone equal opportunities. And, and that is just not true. That premise is wrong. Uh, my daughter, Maya, um, such a fun, loving little kid. She loves to do magic tricks. Um, you can maybe ask her to do some of these after the service today. Now, let me just set your heart at ease. We're not actually doing devilish magic in our home, okay? But she loves to do these little tricks. She loves to do magic tricks. And she's got one trick that I've seen her over and over again show people, and it just drives them crazy because they can't figure out how it was done. We had one night where our other daughters had some friends over, and so there's this group of teenage girls in our living room, and Maya shows them this trick, and they just, they just lose it. They cannot figure out how she's doing it. And so they're asking her to do it over and over and over again. So, so what she does is she, she takes her hands like this and you see that she has two rubber bands. And she says, on the count of three, say, Maya is magic and I'll make one disappear. So she counts it down, one, two, three, and they say it. And then she takes her hands away and there's just this rubber band left on one hand and the other one is gone. 
And so people see that and they're like, do it again. They think maybe she's shooting it across the room. And so they have her do it 15 times in a row. And they're, they're trying to figure it out. Is she, is she throwing it onto her hand? By the time she's done, they're checking behind their ears and pockets and everything. Like they're just wondering, how are you doing this? And one night I'm watching this and I'm seeing these teenage girls giggle and try to figure out as Maya does it over and over again. And this illustration popped in my head. And I said, girls, this is a perfect illustration for philosophy, theology, and how you conclude truth. Check your premise. And they stare at me like I'm an idiot because they have no idea what I'm talking about. And so I wasn't going to give it away, but I asked Maya's permission and she told me I could, I could, I could share this. So here's what she does. Check your premise. When she holds up her hands, I said, you see that she has two rubber bands, but she does not. She only has one rubber band, which she twists in a particular way, pushes them together, and it looks like there are two rubber bands. And then so all the rest of the trick, they're trying to figure out what she does with this rubber band that never existed. Check your premise. See, you can work through 99 steps carefully, check and triple check your conclusions and see if you're careful. But if you have a faulty premise, everything after that will be wrong. Listen, that applies to logic, philosophy, theology, politics. You just go down the line. A faulty premise will get you to wrong conclusions. And so listen. If you believe that predestination is unrighteous, you have an erroneous premise. You believe that God owes people certain things, that the fact is he does not owe a sinful race that is sprinting towards hell. All of mankind is fallen and deserves the wrath of God. Flip, flip back, if you will, to Romans 3 for a second. Romans 3, find verse 10. I'm just going to read through this very quickly. I know you're familiar with it. This is God looking down from heaven, summarizing the spiritual state of mankind. Verse 10, there is none righteous, not even once. Immediately somebody will object. Whoa, not, not me. No, God looks down from heaven. This is all of mankind. All of mankind, there is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless in the, the purpose that God created them for. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asthma is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before your eyes. Now, if you hear this and you're going, no, 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 I'm good. Listen, you are judging yourself based on the moral code of the world and not the standard you actually have been given, which is the law of God. The moral code of the world is like, if you're nice and don't kill people, then you're good. That is not the standard of from God, from heaven, you have been given. And listen very carefully. When you come to the day of judgment, it will not be any Hollywood actresses who are sitting on the throne determining your fate. It is the living God. He is your judge and your judge gave you your standard. He gave you the plumb line by which you will be judged and it is the law of God. And when we measure ourselves by the law of God, we fall short. We are left wanting. And the Bible then is crystal clear about what I deserve from breaking the law of God. I deserve punishment. The biblical word is wrath. I deserve hell. If I deserve hell, if I deserve the wrath of God, then listen very carefully. What does God owe me? He only owes me wrath. The only thing I am due the only thing that I could say, well, this is what I've earned and you have to give me. It's only right if you give me. The only thing is hell. I deserve hell. And if I deserved it at the moment, whatever moment I was first accountable to God, from that moment I've deserved hell, then does God owe me any kindness? And the answer is no. The answer is no. The, any good gift that I get is called Grace, that's the definition of grace. 
Grace is when you get something better than what you deserve. Mercy is when you don't get the wrath, the punishment that you do deserve. Well, salvation in Christ is we get mercy and grace. We get mercy in that we are not sent to the wrath of God in hell that we deserve, and we are given what is infinitely better. We are given grace. But we gotta understand this. Humans are getting grace wrong all the time. We get justice and grace wrong all the time. All the time humans are thinking that I'm entitled to things that are unreasonable. All the time humans are believing that society owes me things that are unreasonable. All the time husbands and wives are getting bitter with each other because each one thinks the other one owes them more than what they're getting. We, we have this so messed up. We're actually having national debates right now over things like there's a percentage of the population who believe they should be able to run at a police officer with a knife and you owe me to let me stab you. Humans are getting justice, grace, and mercy wrong all the time. Parents with children, what is entitled and then what is kind, it's all the time getting confused. Humans get grace wrong all the time, believing that God owes us things. Listen, Christian, this still applies to us. Every time that we have circumstances that go sour and we get bitter, bitter at God, bitter at just life itself, we are getting justice and grace and mercy wrong. We're thinking that God owes us things that he does not owe us. And so understand, we are all sprinting towards hell. God is not acting unrighteous to let people get what they want. If we are acting like Jonah and running in the opposite direction of God, God is not unrighteous to let us go to what we want. And then, God is not unrighteous if there's a man, say by the name of Pharaoh, who is sprinting away from God towards hell and God decides to give him some judgment now by hardening his heart, going even further the direction he wanted to go, God is not unrighteous. God hardening his heart is not wicked. It is a right and just response. And out of the group sprinting towards hell, God is not unrighteous if he wants to grab onto some of them and give them mercy and grace. God has the freedom, the authority, and the right to do any of those three things I just mentioned. To pass some over, to harden some, or to save some. He has the freedom. He has the right to do any of this any way that he wants to and all of it is just. Nobody has the right to say to God, well, you should have saved everybody. Nobody has that right. Somebody just as may as well say to you, let's imagine someone murdered your entire family and you wanted justice. That is a righteous desire. That is a righteous desire. But suppose somebody comes along and says, you're being evil because you want justice. 10 billion times more. It is inappropriate. It is unjust for us to say to God, you should have saved everybody. Or you should give everybody equal opportunity. Lay a hand over your mouth. We have no right to accuse God of anything like this. And yet every day, Every day, God sustains the breathing, sustains the heartbeat of billions of people who reject him. Every day, God is giving grace that he does not have to give. And so, you know, one of the answers of the text is, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are that you have the right to accuse God of wrong? Now, there's a parable that I think will be helpful for us here at this point. If you keep your place in Romans and flip back to Matthew chapter 20 with me for a second. Matthew 20, I'm going to read the first 16 verses there. 
but while you're turning there, let me introduce it just a little bit. Jesus tells this parable in order to help with some understanding on a couple of things. One is to help people who trust God and have been working hard to follow and obey God to rejoice in the salvation of the ungodly who come to faith, maybe even in the 11th hour. Think of the, the thief on the cross as you're reading this. And it was also given to help Israel understand that though they had been God's people for a long time and the godly ones, those of faith, they had been working to obey God for a long time. They should see the righteousness of God in choosing to go after the Gentiles and they should rejoice when he saved them. So bear those things in mind and let's read this parable. I think you'll also find this parable is incredibly applicable to things we have going on in our culture today. Matthew 20, verse one. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour. This is, this is assuming a 12 hour work day, by the way. The sixth and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, because no one hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the 11th hour came, each one received a denarius. That's the, that was the going rate for a day laborer. When those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner saying, these last men have worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the, and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to the last man the same as you. Now watch this. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first and the first last. Now consider the point that's being made there. You know, these religious Israelites, those of faith, they're the workers who have spent the, uh, the time and the heat of the day and the ungodly and the Gentiles are those who come to the fields late, but they do come. You might think of the thief on the cross who was saved in just the last minutes before he met the Lord. Israel had been God's special people for a long time. They'd been in the fields during the heat, but God chose to give grace to those who came late in the day. And part of the whole point is this. No one has the right to be angry with God for being gracious. God has the freedom to give his grace in whatever way he chooses. And we all know that to be true. Even the people who are complaining about that kind of thing today, we all know it to be true. You might hire a young man to come mow your yard and pay him $20. I don't know if that's the going rate or not. Hire him for $20. And then the very next day, you might just give someone $20. You have the right to do that. And the young man that you hired to mow your grass, he doesn't have the right to be angry. Now he might be angry. But he doesn't have a righteous reason for his angry. If he's angry, what did the scripture call that? Envy. Envy. If you're walking down the street and, and you encounter someone in need, you might walk up and give them whatever, $10 or a house. And other people who are in need, they do not have the right to say, hey, wait a second, that's not fair. You didn't give me anything. Listen, you don't owe them. You don't owe them. You have the right to take what is yours. Now for us humans, under the law of God, we understand. You have the right to take what is yours and to give it as you desire. God has the freedom to give his grace any way that he wants to. If he owes human race no kindness at all, 
and he sustains their breathing, he has been kind. He has been gracious. And if he chooses to grab onto some who are sprinting towards hell, he has the right to do that. We need to have a firm grasp on what we're owed, what we're entitled to, what grace actually is. People who believe that they're entitled to all kinds of things, they're never thankful because they always think, you know, whatever I get, I was owed it. People who understand justice, mercy, and grace are, are gra people with lots of gratitude and they're happier because they have gratitude. God is righteous. God is righteous to save or not save any that he desires. And so look back to verse 15 and read it in a new light. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God says, I will have mercy on who I want. I don't owe anyone. And so I'm free to choose whoever I want to show grace to. Now I know still at the end of that, there will be some who, who do not find that a satisfactory answer. But to those who trust God, we say he's righteous. And not only is he righteous, he's amazingly gracious. Well, here's the third answer. And I'm going to be moving quicker, by the way. These last ones, I'll mostly just rattle off. So here is the third answer that the text gives. It's in verses 16 to 18 again. So back in Romans 9, if you go there, verses 16 to 18, let me read it again quickly and then point out what I believe it's saying. So then it does not depend on the man who wills. I, I think he's saying that just as a matter of fact, like this is the way that it is. It doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. I think the truth being revealed in these verses, the answer there is, yes, this is righteous. This is the only way it works. This is the only way the world works. This is the only way anybody is saved. This is the way it's always been. You just did not know it. So I think a similar kind of to the first one is what is being stated there is predestination is righteous. Guys, it's always been this way. This is the way the world works. God's sovereignty reigns over all. He's, I think he's saying in one sense, you've misunderstood the world when you thought you had the power to be saved or not. And you thought that ultimately everyone used their wills and your will was the ultimate definitive uh, decision maker there. You've misunderstood that no man can come to God unless he is drawn by him. Now we're going to explore more of this when we consider the phrase, it does not depend on the man who wills. So as part of our sermon series, we'll, we'll, we'll have a sermon or part of a sermon where we, we talk about the human will. What is it? It's that part of us that chooses, that makes decisions. And then we'll consider, well, what are the things that influence our decisions, that influence our wills? We're going to see there are thousands of things. Like even if you had coffee this morning, influence decisions that we make. Now that's not a godly way to make decisions, but does it impact? It does, okay? And the same then our beliefs, that's the way that God designed it, was that truth was to be the influential determiner of our wills and our decision. But now all kinds of factors influence those things, but, but, but can't go into all of that. But for today, something we need to see for right now. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Now, when Jesus said that, he was not saying that if somebody comes to God and they really trust Jesus and they love God and they want to be saved, but they're not elect, that God's going to say, well, I know you want to be saved and you believe, but you can't because I didn't choose you. That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is the human condition is in such a bad way. No one will truly repent and believe unless God does the work of drawing them. The human condition is in such a way, this is how the world works. Even if, even if in the Old Testament they didn't understand it, this is how the world works. The human condition is in such a bad way, no one will truly 
want God, truly entrust themselves to God, truly turn away from their love of sin to love to God. Oh, humans would do religion. They would pray fancy prayers. And let me also remind you that the sinner's prayer is not magic words that make you saved. You are converted at the moment of genuine faith and repentance, repentant faith. Words are the way we pray and express that to God. But it's not like if you hypnotize somebody and they say the magic words that suddenly they would be saved. Okay. What the Bible is showing is no one would genuinely in their heart truly repent and believe unless God did this work. So when it says it does not depend on the man who wills, it's not saying that God is undoing what people are trying to do and trying to be saved. No, no one would care. No one would want God unless God did the new birth and drew them to himself. So I, I believe the point of what's saying here is, guys, this is always the way it has worked. This is how the world works. It doesn't depend on man's will. Salvation depends on the grace of God. Make no mistake, I believe that if someone in history, even one person, could muster up the willpower to genuinely repent and believe, I absolutely believe God would accept them. It's just that no one has that ability. Because in our sin, we love it. We, we don't want God. We, we may think we do. We may do some religion, but we don't want, truly want to submit to God. I love my sin. And so I think that's the third one that's being said there. And then I believe I can say the fourth and the fifth very quickly. If you, jump, if you uh, look down to verse nine, 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? The same question is still being asked. How is it righteous? Two more answers are given. Notice verse 20. On the contrary, who are you, O oh man, who answers back to God? I believe this is solemn and serious. I believe it is the basic message, lay your hand over your mouth. Who do you think that you are to say to God, the Holy One, the one who cast the stars in the sky, made this universe, insert sermon of how big the universe is, the one who is holy, 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 the one before whom angels crumble because they are overwhelmed by his glory and his holiness. And you, the maggot, you, the maggot in your depravity are going to point your maggot finger up at the living God and accuse him of unrighteousness. I, I saw a clip not long ago of a man who had committed multiple murders, a wicked and depraved sadist. And he's in the courtroom and he starts chewing out the judge. And the man was literally such a fool. He actually believed he understood righteousness and justice more than the judge. And everybody who's watching this is just seething going, don't you see what an idiot you are? 10 billion times more. We who are the sinful creatures the defiled ones. How dare we point fingers to heaven and say, you're not supposed to work like this. Or you should have been more gracious than this. Humans are all the time thinking they're kinder than God. <laughs> you're not. Who do you think you are? And so what, what, what this text is saying here is, lay your hand over your mouth. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? And then the fifth one. Pick up there at the last part of verse 20. The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What it is saying is that God has authority over that which belongs to him. And guess what belongs to him? Everything. All things are from him, through him, and to him. To him be the glory forever. Amen. If you sit down at a potter's wheel and throw a lump of clay there, you have the absolute freedom and right to make what you want. That clay does not have the right to yell at you. You have the right to make what you want. God created all 
matter. Matter did not even exist until God created it. God owns it. It all belongs to him. The very life and breath that is inside of you right now, that is an extension of God himself. He has given you some of himself to keep your heart beating. We belong to him. God has the right to do what he wants. God owns history. God owns time. God owns matter. God owns all of his creatures. He has the right to bring about history in whatever way he wants. He has the right to let people run to hell. He has the right to harden and he has the right to choose some to be saved. The race of men is sprinting towards hell. Planet Earth is death row, if you remember that illustration from several weeks ago. It will not always be, but it is right now. Listen, the amazing part, the part that we should be shocked about is not that God passed over Esau. It's that God loved Jacob. That's the part that should shock us. And our perspective is wrong when we read the text and we're amazed that God passed over Esau, we should absolutely be amazed that God set his love on anyone. And when you think about your salvation, you should just be overwhelmed with gratitude that God showed grace. And as we consider all these things, I don't know how any of this makes you feel, but do not determine what you believe, what is true based on how you feel. There are all kinds of truths in this world that are true, but they don't feel good. A man has cancer. I don't feel good about that, but it is still a truth. Do not base what you believe on how you feel. But along those lines, we also need to understand this. We are to be those who love the truth. In fact, one of the ways the New Testament speaks of Christians is that they are those who love the truth. Predestination is part of who God is. It is how he works. It is righteous. And we are to have peace with that. See the righteousness and the justice of it. And it is a big deal in your personal worship, your personal relationship with God that you regard him rightly. If you think wrongly about God, that is a big deal. We are to regard him as righteous and all of his ways and all of his works as righteous. It's not okay, you may have heard this before, to say something like, well, I believe predestination is true, but I don't have to like it. Yes, you do. Because this is God. This is how he works. This is his will. This is his way. Everything he does is glorious and predestination reveals more of his glory. He is bigger and more sovereign than you and I ever thought he was. He's bigger and we're smaller than we ever thought. He is glorious. Worship him as glorious. Bless his name as righteous. And if you have never turned to Christ in faith, you've heard a great deal about your sin and your need today. God has given an answer. He has given a provision to save your soul from the hell that you deserve. It is the Lord Jesus. You can receive him. God gives the free open invitation Come and drink. You want grace? You want eternal life? He invites, he beckons, come. Come, place your faith in Jesus and he will save you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we love you. We delight. We bless you. We bless your name as righteous. Lord, you are just, you are glorious in all of your ways. And Lord, we see more of your glory in this. You are the sovereign one. And we're so thankful for it. We're so thankful that for us who are here and in Christ, we did, you did not let us just sprint to hell. You pursued us. You grabbed onto us. You called. You worked the new birth. We are so thankful. And God, I pray for any else that are here and they have not yet turned to Christ. Please, I pray that you will work so that they want you and they believe. Bless us, O Lord, as we dismiss and we ask these things in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Real quick before you head out the door, once again, we've got some more uh, joining, uh, Engelberth family, if you guys would be willing to come on up here. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND. Or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.